Welcome back to Cobbler's Gulch. Episode 11, Hunchback Facts and Fancy. Here is what we know about hunchbacks. The deformity begins in the womb, a physical expression of guilt, of sins committed by mother and father that go without apologies. I ain't sorry for nothing. Regrets. I got no regrets. Or atonements. You can keep your forgiveness. The hunchback is made to shoulder that guilt, to bear that burden of shame. Why this injustice occurs is unknown. Sometimes the world just chooses what it chooses. This injustice, however, is not without its benefits. It puts the hunchback in touch with the realm beyond the bounds, usually referred to as the realm of the lost and the forgotten. It's a world of ghosts and spirits and wanderers who know all things. The sympathies of these ethereal beings are aroused by the hunchback's plight, and so they offer the hunchback a gift in the form of psychic powers, second sight, mediumship, and an uncanny ability to locate lost or misplaced items. Tangible things like buttons, keys, eyeglasses, or assorted undergarments. Usually socks, but occasionally underwear and garter belts. Hunchbacks can also locate lost or misplaced items of the intangible variety. They can find lost patients for mothers and fathers who are overrun by their children. They can find lost minds by people who've pushed it too far, who've gone all the way to the brink and fell over the edge. They can find lost voices for poets or artists or musicians, or even for people who've just lost their ability to say what they mean. They can also find the way for people who've lost that. They can find lost souls. And for those of us who are the worst off, those people who've lost their ability to love, they can even help them find that. This psychic gift is the reason Hazel seeks out Elwood, the hunchbacked orphan. She's hoping he can provide some clues as to the lost, possibly misplaced fairy. Now, the shrewd critic might wonder why Hazel doesn't begin with Elwood, and spare herself the time of appealing to Gruff and Copper, not to mention the ghastly stench of the bunkum barge. Yar. Why is Elwood her last hope, instead of her first? Or at least one of the first? Well, the reason's simple. He's not a very good hunchback. At best, the competency of his psychic gifts are questionable. To be honest, my second sight is a little nearsighted. There was that time he warned the Cobbler's Gulch Farmers Fellowship to prepare for a drought. And at his very declaration of the word drought, the sky darkened and sheets of rain fell, triggering what has come to be known as the flood to end all droughts. Or there was that time he directed a fisherman to set his sails for the Sassafras Sea, where there would be a mighty catch only to learn that the fisherman lost his eye in a freak bait-and-tackle accident along the way. And there was the time a minstrel lost his voice, and Elwood told him he could find it at Himmel Tower. But when the minstrel began ascending the great rock formation, he slipped, and his chin hit his knee, 
causing him to bite his tongue clean off. And before he could grab it, an albatross snatched it up and flew away. So Elwood's skills do not inspire confidence. Still, Hazel has hope, which is normally the best of things. But in this case, her hope is unfortunate because there's something she doesn't know about Elwood. He isn't actually a hunchback. Everyone assumes he's a hunchback since his overcoat, which Hazel has never seen him out of, clearly covers a hunch of some type. Whatever's beneath his coat must be shameful because Elwood prefers to endure life as an uninspiring hunchback rather than be whatever it is that he is. He channels and holds seances and communes with the dead and runs every other clairvoyant chore that's asked of him just to keep up appearances. He never, never refuses a request. So it confuses Hazel when he refuses her request. But why not? You use a second sight for everybody. Not everyone. Hazel calls nonsense when she hears it. Farmers, fishermen, pirates, Madame Drax, anybody on the scrimshanks who asks, the other orphans, even that chicken-hearted Scrivener who thought his backbone had been misplaced. You help everyone. Why not me? I don't know. I just can't. Okay, so part of this is not true. The other part is all true. The part that is true is that he can't help her with his psychic gifts any more than he's helped anyone with his psychic gifts. The part that's not true is his claim that he doesn't know why he won't help her. The truth is this. He won't help her because he's so very fond of her. And the likely possibility of disappointing Hazel makes him feel like his heart is shrinking, like it's wilting right in his chest. The lilt blossoms are what I have left. The only thing I have left to remember my parents. And they're slipping away. If you can't help me... The thick sound of Hazel's voice as it trails off and the image of her trembling chin as she fights back tears make Elwood's heart wilt even more. It suddenly occurs to him that Hazel will be more disappointed by his failure to help than by the failure that his help is likely to cause. Well, um, maybe I could try to... Hazel throws her arms around him, squeezing him and his mysterious hunch with the strength of pure gratitude, which is one of the strongest things out there. Elwood's heart swells in his chest as he and Hazel dash to the now empty field of lilt blossoms, where he'll make his best attempt to communicate with the realm of the lost and the forgotten. Of course, there's no reason for him to believe that his psychic attempt will be any different than any of the other attempts. But a heart swollen with excitement and adulation and drunk on gratitude can stave off all sorts of doubt. They find a tree stump on the north side of the now empty field of lilt blossoms. The nanny goat stands on top of it. Her billy, eating grass in the distance. Elwood shoes the goat off the stump and climbs right up on top of it. A dead tree is the perfect place to be when speaking to the realm of the lost and the forgotten. Dead things like dead things. Do they? 
Oh, sure. Familiarity and all that. Hmm. Makes sense. Typically, insecure about his soothsaying routine, Elwood often performs quietly and with little fanfare. Not today. Today, he's motivated. If he was ever going to will communion with the realm of the lost and the forgotten, he would will it today. He takes deep breaths. He stretches his arms wide, angles up slightly toward the heavens, his hunch appearing even larger and more imposing in this dramatic posture. With that, he gives the soothsaying everything he has. We summon the beings from the bounds beyond. Lend us your ears and pray, respond. Things that are lost, make them found. Things misplaced, make them rebound. Things forgotten, help us recall. Of our quandaries, make sense of them all. As he recites the incantation, his arms stretch and raise, recoil and withdraw. If he does fail, it will not be for lack of commitment. Scribble-scrabble and topsy-turvy, fiddle-faddle and whoopsie-doo, golly-goops and nervy-curvy. And this is when the soothsaying becomes soothe-screaming. Spindiggy-bazinga and coochie-woo-woo-woo-woo! In the frenzy and fervor of the ritual, Elwood loses his balance and falls headlong off the stump. There's something important to note about Elwood's scream. It's a beautiful scream, rich and melodious in its tone. His vocal range spans 13 octaves and a few semitones, which varies depending on the humidity. The particular note that he hits when he screams, actually, it starts as a scream, but it becomes a wail. Anyhow, that note is an A-flat minor, a grave, razor-sharp note of lament that he belches out at 10 octaves above middle C. And there's a reason you're not hearing Elwood's scream now. It's for your own protection. Because if you were hearing it right now, you'd likely also be hearing what Elwood and Hazel hear next. A big horned bear that's emerged on the other side of the now empty field of lilt blossoms who's galloping toward them with an amorous glint in her eye. The octave and note that Elwood hits speaks directly to the bear's heart, if not her loins. Although Elwood's vocal range does explain the presence of the big horned bear, it only partially explains the bear's love-stricken behavior. And it doesn't at all explain the enormous wings that flop out behind Elwood after his overcoat is torn off by a sharp tree limb when he and Hazel climb up a knobbly elm tree to safety. Bighorn bears can climb but find it difficult since their horns often tangle and snag in branches. What does explain the wings are Elwood's parents. His father was a fisherman, the only man to have ever seduced one of the sirens of the Suceris Straits. The seduction was short-lived, and the siren eventually bit off the fisherman's head, as sirens often do, but not before she became pregnant. Forty-seven months later, a siren pregnancy is awful long. Beauty takes its time. But anyhow, forty-seven months later, Elwood is born. Like all sirens, he's born with wings. Unlike all sirens, his wings are useless, flightless things. His mother grows ashamed of him and takes the first opportunity to rid herself of his presence. She leads him into the eye of a storm, where she abandons him. 
Unable to fly against the winds of a tempest, Elwood's tossed this way and that until he's eventually picked up by a pirate ship and left on the doorstep of the orphanage. Even though Elwood's not a hunchback, he does possess some of the hunchback qualities, mostly the burden that he carries, which actually belongs to his mother. Her shame became his. It takes a while, about 15 minutes, for Elwood's wail to cease echoing. Once it runs its course, the bighorn bear shakes its head, confused by its own desire to cuddle up Elwood, and then wanders away. At that time, Hazel and Elwood climb down the knobbly elm. You don't have the second sight, do you? Elwood's heart is on the verge of wilting. Are you disappointed? Yeah, but I'm grateful that you tried anyway. And Elwood's heart will not be wilting today. Hazel looks at Elwood's wings, silver feathers, long and sharp, as beautiful as any wings she's ever seen. You won't tell the others, will you? If you don't want me to, I won't. Thank you. But I think they're wonderful. You do? Why would you hide them? They don't do anything. They're worthless. So they don't help you fly? I don't know what they do. Maybe they used to fly. Maybe you just need to remember. Maybe, but some things can't be remembered once you forget them. Once they pass into the realm of the lost and the forgotten leave anything in the past long enough, it dies. They start walking back to town. After a few steps, Hazel stops for a moment, turns to gaze at the now empty field of lilt blossoms. She closes her eyes and imagines the field in full bloom, wondering how long she can keep the image alive in her mind's eye, in her heart, in the here and now, and out of the realm of the lost and the forgotten. Thanks for listening. On the next episode of Cobbler's Gulch, Effervescent. In the meantime, do your best to keep everything out of the realm of the lost and the forgotten. Pay attention to details. Learn the names of things. Don't stop to smell the roses. Stop to smell the sweet briars, the Gertrude Jekylls, the American beauties. The devil's in the details, they say. And if that's true, it's a virtue to learn the details and keep the devils where you can see them, so you don't lose anything to the realm of the lost and the forgotten.